Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we will be joined by Gordon Louts, founder and CEO of Glycanage. In this episode, I wanted to learn about Gordon's path from being an academic to founding Glycanage and how to measure biological age using glycans and what that means for longevity therapeutics and human health. Without further ado, here's Gordon Louts. Welcome back to another installation of the A4LI HSPAN podcast. Our guest today is Gordon Louts. It's great to have you on. So Gordon, can you tell us a little bit about Glycanage, the progression of from academia to, to industry? Can you kind of give us your story there and how Glycanage came about? So I work in the field of glycobiology for 30 years. We analyzed many glycans. We analyzed over 200,000 people so far in my lab. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things we learned is that glycans change a lot with age, especially glycans attached to immunoglobulins. And in the meantime, from the work of other people, we learned that these same glycans which change with age actually regulate low-grade chronic inflammation. Mm -hmm. So we realized that we have a molecule, which is not only a biomarker, so something which changes with time or with intervention, but which is also an active effector of inflammation. So these are the molecules which regulate inflammation. And when we are young, most of these molecules actually suppress inflammation. And as we are getting older, more and more of immunoglobulins will have glycans which promote inflammation. And we know that chronic inflammation is underlying majority of complex diseases which are burdening us today. So we developed this glycan age, clock of biological age, which is measuring glycans and kind of mapping every individual on average trajectory of aging. Because aging is, actually aging is a concept we don't really understand because we measure age in years. No, but a year is a period which our planet needs to go around the sun. Sure. So if we move to another planet, the age will be something completely different. And we know that different people age differently. Mm -hmm. So some people are old in their 40s or 50s, while others are young in their 70s. So obviously, chronological age is not the same as biological age. And we believe that the glycans, which change according to our lifestyle and, and also genetics, of course, is a better measure of our kind of biological time than just the years. And then we developed this first as this was a research tool. We published many papers. We published over 100 papers so far. And then recently, we also established a company called the Glycanage, which is actually selling this test mostly through a series of different clinics, longevity clinics, anti-aging clinics all around the world. I think it's over 600 of them today which are selling the test because idea is that this test is actually showing you whether something you are trying to do helps you or not. Right. right. Because, you know, there is one important thing which we often forget. So, you know, it, it, 
it's widely accepted that the majority of drugs do not work in everybody. So if you go, if you have a disease, you get the drug, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, then you get another drug and another drug. So you know that the drug will not always help you because everybody is different. But we think, or at least we are made to think, that the, the same type of diet or exercise will actually be beneficial for everybody, which is completely wrong. And this is probably why we have thousand different uh, magic diet books, each of them claiming this is a magic solution. And indeed it is for some people, but not for everybody. And with a test like this, you can actually try something and see whether it helps or not. Because you cannot know what is good for you by looking yourself in the mirror or just stepping on a scale and seeing your weight or doing any kind of a regular uh, blood test will actually not tell you much about kind of a chronic uh, situation you have at the moment. It can tell you acute inflammation. It can tell you some uh, problems which require immediate attention, but it will not tell you much about the progression of your aging. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that is probably the most important issue, or the most pressing issue this field faces, uh, faces today, right? The ability to measure uh, efficacy of uh, different therapeutics and, and interventions. So uh, definitely fascinating. Can you do us, the audience and me a favor? Can you go a little bit more into depth uh, on what glycans are? Can you kind of give us an in-depth uh, uh, look at that? So to do that, we have to go a couple of billion years back in the history. Right. And when we were single-cell organisms, we decided to become multicellular. This means differentiation, recognition between cells, signaling, and so on. And then our genes became insufficient source of information, or at least variation. Because, you know, we have 20,000 genes. Simple bacteria has 5,000 genes. So we are not only four times more complicated than, than a bacteria. We are thousands or millions of times more complicated. So at that time in evolution, when life started to become multicellular, a new class of molecules appeared called glycoproteins, which are composed both of polypeptide, this is the protein part, and, and a glycan part. And actually, the majority of proteins which we have today and which we know today are glycoproteins, meaning they have a glycan part and they have a polypeptide part. Polypeptide part has its gene. This gene can be changed only by mutations. And we inherit it from our parents and these things change very slowly. Glycans are encoded in dozens or hundreds of genes. So different combinations of genetic variations will create different glycans. And actually, glycans are one of the main reasons why we are different. Even the ABO blood groups are chemically glycans. So the, the majority of inter-individual variability are glycans, which are attached to our proteins, which are part of a protein, and determine the protein function. For example, in immunoglobulin G, if you attach one type of a glycan, this molecule will promote inflammation. It will activate NK cells, or it will activate some other mechanisms and kill the target. But if you attach different glycans, the same monoglobulin will suppress inflammation and become anti-inflammatory agent. And this is not defined by a gene. This is defined by glycan. Mm -hmm. 
which is added later. So glycans are giving another layer of complexity to life, to biological uh, systems. And the reason why people don't know much about glycans is that they are complicated. So they are at least a uh, thousand or 10,000 times more glycoproteins than proteins. Recently, there was a paper showing that one glycoprotein can come in a million different glycoforms and single polypeptide, million different glycoforms. And many researchers were actually not working in that field. And until maybe 15 years ago, it was not possible to analyze large cohorts of people and look at glycans. This is what we, we were the pioneers. We were the first who started to look at glycans in a large cohorts. And then this enabled us to develop all these glycan biomarkers, not only glycan H, but there are others. So how, how did you come to this the discovery about glycans? Like, what is your, how did your background kind of lead to this? Like, when was the realization point for you? You were like, oh, this is a really strong indicator of biological uh, age. As I said, I started 30 years ago. Yep, yep. And it, at that time, it was very difficult. We couldn't measure them accurately. It was really hard to understand what they know. And then, it was actually 16 years ago, we started to look at the large cohorts. So if you know, the field of genetics really changed with the genome-wide association studies, which started in 2007 approximately. And we linked with these people who were doing genome-wide association studies. And we said, okay, we will do glycans in a large cohorts. And then we start, when we started to link glycan data with the anthropological data, with the clinical data, with the genetic data, we realized how important glycans are and how much information is in glycans. For example, if you want to predict heart attack or stroke, which will happen in the future, there are different scales how you can do it. You take a lot of information about the person, the, the habits, the biochemical parameters, and then you calculate this index. We have all this information just in glycans attached to immunoglobulins. So if you measure glycans attached to immunoglobulins, you get all this information, which is predicting a heart attack and stroke. Or if you take another example, this is the total plasma glycan. So taking all the proteins from plasma, which are mostly liver made, and analyze these glycans, they have all the information about the risk of future diabetes. So you can see who will develop diabetes in the future without knowing the current glucose levels, HbA1c. You don't need anything. You just have to measure glycans. Wow. Because glycans integrate genetic, epigenetic, and environmental information into chemical structure, which you can quantify, and then you can accurately measure it in different people. Wow. That, I mean, it, it seems like glycans, yeah, like you said, are kind of this like like a really strong indicator of all these other things that are going wrong in your body, which makes a lot of sense. Ten years ago, I published a paper saying the glycans are the third revolution in evolution. Or, or the other one, epigenetic regulation of protein glycosylation is a quantum mechanics of biology. So they, then it was a visionary papers, but now we can really say that. You know, right. it's a, you have a classical biology, and then you have this uh, quantum biology, which also includes glycosylation. So it's a, yeah, it's an extremely fascinating field, especially in an overlap with epigenetics, mm. because mm. it is mostly epigenetics, which is kind of uh, hardwiring the, the environmental information 
and then producing glycans, which are response to that environment. So, so my next question is, when did you start, when did you realize that this, you, you know, this discovery could become a company? Like when did this become an academic endeavor to a business endeavor? Well, it, it was immediately. So the moment we discovered it, we filed for the patent protection. Okay. But we were not successful at the beginning in making this in a company. One of the first mistakes we made, we thought that the, the gyms would be the natural partner because people go to gym to be healthier. And then if you measure people in a gym before and after, they will get better. Right. Actually, what we learned is that the majority of middle-aged people, when they start going to gym, actually they got worse because they get overtrained. So overtraining is also very bad. And, you know, by all this propaganda campaign for the junk food, we were always told you just have to sweat out the bad diet. You just exercise more and then you solve all the problems. This is not the case. You cannot sweat out the bad diet. You have to fine-tune your exercise. And now when you look backwards, it was so logical because, you know, the, the professional athletes, they're old in their 30s and they exercise a lot. So right. obviously, over-exercising is making you age faster. And it was actually when Nicolina, my daughter, started to lead the glycan age, then she managed to develop it into the product which people actually want to buy. And it's not only the tests, it's actually giving people a solution. Gotcha. So it has to be entire package where you test somebody, and then try to help them understand the test and improve. And this is where it started to, to function, especially when we linked with some of the good anti-aging clinics, which are successful in what they do. Because now in, in the field of longevity, there is so much snake oil. You know, everybody can claim that this will make you forever young, that this will give you back 20 years or whatever. And majority of these things don't work. And they don't want to be tested and quantified because it's easy to cheat on somebody when they cannot see an effect until 20, 30 years after. But if there is a tool which can immediately quantify, no, no, not immediately, but in a couple of months can quantify the effect, then you cannot so easily sell the snake oil anymore. So actually this thing became successful when we started to work with some serious clinics who are really trying hard to help people improve. Mm. And then when we see people are getting younger, and I think on average, glycan age customers are becoming five or six years younger per year. And then the client is happy, the clinic is happy, everybody's happy. (laughs) And also even, you know, if what we have also seen examples that people try something and it doesn't do it doesn't do them good. You know, right. they actually got worse after right. intervention. And then they try something else and that works. And despite being very frustrated at the beginning, and often people who are really trying hard get frustrated if this is not showing good effect. But then when they change something, things get better. Because you know, each of us is different. There is no universal solution. In some people, it's mostly psychological well-being. No. They feel good. Everything goes good. They're under stress. They are. They don't sleep enough. 
even if they exercise a lot and have a perfect diet, this will not be good. For some other people, they can cope with less sleep, they can cope with stress, but they cannot eat, for example, carbohydrates. Right. With carbs, they have horrible results. So, so people are different. You need a professional who will get all that information from a client, give advices, and then you can check it whether it works. And this was the model which was successful. And I think for now, something like three years, Black and Age is really making a fantastic progress. Awesome. Well, so, so you, you, you kind of touched on the solutions that you guys provide. Is that, do you work with the clinics to, to, to do they provide the solutions or what, so, what do you recommend to your patients? So, so there are two approaches. Okay. One is working with a clinic, which provides a solution and Glycanage is just giving a feedback or Glycanage also has a team of professionals who are giving advice and they can guide people what and how to do. So these are two different approaches. I think they're more or less equally represented in the current situation. And what I forgot to mention is, so I did mention that Nicolina started to lead the company, but Nicolina comes from the business background. Mm. She was an entrepreneur before. She had her own company, companies in a hospitality space. And then she learned that it's very important to make customers happy. I'm just a scientist, you know. I measure something, I tell you the number, and if you don't like it, I tell you, I don't care. Go somewhere else. That's my approach. I, I'm not a business person. So it's a combination of good science. And I think the, the key thing behind glycan age is we have solid science. There is more science about glycans than about any other test, including any epigenetic test. So when you put all the epigenetic text, tests together, there is more data. But any of them, beside maybe original Steve Horvath's clock, there are more papers about the Steve's clock, but all other epigenetic tests which are in the market have very little science behind it. So it's hard to know what is really truth and what is not. Right. Absolutely. Well, actually, that's interesting. You brought up Steve Horvath's clock. That was my next question. So, you know, the other big clock in this world is the DNA methylation clock, right? How does, you know, the glycan age clock, the DNA methylation clock, how do they play together? Or what's the main differences? What, how do they play together? Do you think they can be used in combination with each other to provide a more accurate age? Do you think that they're two completely different processes? Can you just kind of go over uh, what your thoughts are on that? So we cannot put all the epigenetic clocks together and say there is a epigenetic clock. Mm -hmm. So the original Steve Horvath's epigenetic clock is extremely accurate in measuring the chronological age because it was developed based on a chronological age. And when you look into acceleration of epigenetic aging and a glycan aging, there is very little correlation. So obviously the epigenetic aging, which is measuring the Steve Horvath clock and glycan aging are two different aspects of aging. Mm. Now, there are probably dozen or even more other epigenetic clocks which have been um, calibrated against some biological processes or biological mole or molecules which measure other aspects of aging which really we don't understand at the moment because you know how is the epigenetic clock being uh, developed they measure 600,000 different cpg sites then they take a variable 
and they find almost among these 600,000, which will predict that variant. So none of them was actually used, didn't use longevity for calibration because, you know, people are still alive when you measure them, still cannot wait until they die. So they usually use different proxies. So I'm absolutely confident if we would have enough data, we would actually build an epigenetic clock, which would be very similar to like an aging clock, but it will be a different CPG sites. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. That's, For that's current cool. epigenetic clocks, we have compared with, with a couple of them. There are several papers being done. Actually, we, we just analyzed again, a couple hundred thousand, a uh, couple thousand people together, glycans and epigenetics. Some aspects correlate, some clocks correlate better, but for now, I, I like to comment on the original Steve Horvath's clock because this is the most published one. So the Steve Horvath's clock is measuring kind of clock of aging. It's the ticking of, of the clock. Glycans are more predictive of future disease development. This is what we have seen in, in some publications. So if you look at glycans, it's more predictive of unfavorable events. Steve's clock is just ticking of aging. Now, there are a couple of new clocks just published a few weeks ago, so I, I can't really comment on them. I haven't seen a lot of data, but there will be more and more epigenetic clocks, and they are extremely interesting. And, and I, we do also a lot of epigenetics. It's, it's a fascinating field. But epigenetics has another problem, and this is that on an individual level, the analytical variation is still too high. So send the same sample twice, you will get a very different number so this still has to be fine-tuned sure sure absolutely yeah i mean i think that's the one of the biggest things holding the field back right now right i mean i think well, not holding the field back but you know the uh solving the biomarker question which is something i actually want to get into get in with you uh i'm gonna take that part out and this is something i want to discuss with you you know one of the things that a4li focuses on a lot is streamlining and creating clarity around the clinical trial process right and, you know, you hear a lot of people say, we want to see aging treated as a disease through, you know, the clinical trial process. We want uh, there to be uh, clinical trials for aging. That doesn't seem to be possible until there are kind of standardized biomarkers for these clinical trials. So do you think lichen age is, is kind of in a position to be the aging clock or is there, you know, is it going to be, you know, a, a combination of clocks? Like, I, I know they're all different, but how does it I'm so my primary problem is, you know, we still do not know what is aging. Right. Is aging accumulation of damage? Is aging actually a program encoded in our genome to eliminate the old individuals to enable new ones to evolve and, and, and adapt? So if we just measure the lifespan, so waiting for somebody to die, this is extremely unpredictable with any biomarker because not dying is actually a random event. So you need many random events of not dying to live for a very long time. And there have been many studies on centenarians. And I think, the, of course, there is some genetic predisposition, but there is so randomness, so much randomness in surviving for a long time that I don't think we'll have a good clock for that. And what I think what we need clocks which either predict unfavorable events, which we have to see how to define them, or which quantify processes which lead to unfavorable 
events. Because one of the problems is when we call diseases unfavorable event, the disease name is a traditional name based on location and symptoms. And diabetes is not a single disease. It's at least 10 different diseases, which we call diabetes. So I think what we will have to do, we'll have to go down on a molecular level, look at the pathophysiological processes, and then have clocks which quantify them. And I think glycanage has a huge potential. Okay, I cannot make this claim for glycanage because the glycanage is not a diagnostic test. But IgG glycan composition, so glycosylation of IgG, has a huge potential to quantify low-grade chronic inflammation. So by developing IgG glycom into a diagnostic test for low-grade chronic inflammation, which we are currently doing through, through our research path, we'll have one clock, which is quantifying a physiological process, which is leading to different diseases, but eventually to the unfavorable favorable outcome, which is the loss of health. So it's now I, I'm not, you know, some people in the field are extremely optimistic that we'll do magic and then change lifespan for hundreds of years, whatever. I'm not that optimistic. I think the best what we can do, we can minimize damage, which we are doing. And we are doing more and more damage to our uh, health with because of the convenience, ready-made food, junk food, all these things are so easy to do and, and, and they cannot be good. Physical inactivity, you know, our pollution, all these other problems which we have, stress. You know, I think just the email and the cell phone raise the, the stress level so much that we'll see it on a, on a life expectancy because people don't relax anymore. You cannot relax. You have cell phone, which is always doing something. So it's the best we can do is try to minimize the damage, develop biomarkers, which will predict unfavorable events and try to make it personalized. So don't expect everybody to behave the same depending on intervention. We have to find our own. So, you know, the way I see medicine of the future is everybody doing their best to stay healthy and not the way we have it today. And today, what we have it today is when something breaks down, we ask for help. So analogy I like to make is what we do to our health today is waiting for a tire to explode on a highway before we change it. No, we don't do preventive maintenance. We just wait for something to break down and then we ask for a magician to help. And the magician always comes with a magic pill, which you have to buy every day and take it for the rest of your life. And it, it's a broken system, which, which cannot survive. I, I like that analogy. That's a good one. I might steal that, Gordon. That's a, that's, that's a good one. Uh, so we, you're not in the camp that we're all going to be, you know, 500 years old, right? But there definitely are, I mean, maybe not yet, maybe sometime far into the future, whatever, but you're not of that kind of futuristic kind of, you know, transhumanist mindset. You're really more based in science and practicality. That's what it seems to me. But there are a lot of drugs out there right now in, in clinical you know, development, phase one, phase two, that are, are you know, are, were created to target aging. So I want to ask you, you know, do you have any interventions, any sort of, you know, areas of drug development in the biology of aging that excite you the most in terms of their potential for uh, improving human health? Yeah. So, well, we did uh, 
study recently. It's the paper will be submitted soon. I cannot say what it is, but there was an intervention which reduced both epigenetic and glycan age nearly by half in rats in a half a year. So there are actually molecules which you give to a rat and both epigenetic and glycan age radically decreased. So I can say only full stop here because we have no ideas what does it really mean. But it's fascinating that it's also affecting glycan age and uh, epigenetic age. I think to be able to really interfere with aging, we have to understand aging. Yep. And there are still two completely competing ideas, accumulation of damage and a program. Yep. And I personally, I think they're both equally probable. Because from evolution's perspective, you need to eliminate old individuals. They waste resources. There is no variation. And if we freeze everything the way it is now, any change in environment could kill us all. So we need this idea of uh, sexual reproduction. We introduce variation. New generation is different, and then they adapt. So it's possible that there is a program. And... It's also possible there is accumulation of damage. But, you know, how do you understand that um, two very similar small birds, one of them would live for two years, the other one would live for 150 years? So what is so different in the biology of these two birds to make them of such a different lifespan? So, I don't know. Some people say it's a P53, which is the guardian of the, of the genome, the protein, which is stopping the cellular production when there is damage. And we have a single copy. And then maybe if we would have three copies, then it would be better. But from our, there is a reason why we are optimized for single copy. So who knows what will be the damage? I think, you know, something what I learned in this pandemic is that our knowledge about the biology is so superficial. You know, we haven't really moved a lot from this licking the bad blood, you know, just letting the, the leeches or just cutting the veins and letting the bad blood go out. Our medicine is extremely primitive because we don't understand biology. And until we understand biology, I'm really skeptical about magic solutions sure. because we have no ideas what could be the side effects. Sure, yeah, well... So, and to give something to a healthy person without knowing the side effects, I, I'm, I, maybe I'm too classical scientist, so I am not so much focused on longevity. What I think what is important is that we maintain our quality of life. Because I I'm 50, few, 53. I feel some of my physical capabilities deteriorating. Mm. I'm not the same as I was in my 20s or my 30s. Mm. So obviously I'm going in kind of a bad direction. Everybody is. So if I can slow it down, if I can have more years without pain, suffering, problems, that's great. Right. If I would have to live for 200 years in pain, I don't want to do it. No, I don't think anybody does. So it's, I think let's try to live healthy and minimize the damage. Maybe one day we'll have a magic pill, but I'm not very much in favor of magic pills. Well, 
you, you know, I, I'm not in favor of snake oil. I'm not in favor of people saying I have the magic pill. If you, if you got the magic pill, that's great. You know, I'll take it. But it needs to be real and based on science and, you know, not some marketing scheme, right? And, so, and, and that it will not kill you in five years. Yes, that's, all, that's also a big one. That's also a big one. Yeah, well, you know, the field, I mean, I, I'm going to kind of switch topics here a little bit, but kind of in the same vein, the field is growing. I mean, I entered this field personally in late 2020, early 2021, and it seems like more and more, you know, entities, companies, investors, scientists are joining the field every day. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? When, you know, how did, how do you feel about the progression of this field? Do you want to see more people get involved? How do you think we can encourage that? So one of the dangers of growing too quickly and I'm afraid with some of the big guys investing in the field, mm. then the, they have expectations which are not met. And then there is a kind of bursting of the balloon. Yep. I've seen it in, in, in many fields. In glycobiology, it was in the 80s when the, there was a hope to solve the inflammation, the heart attacks, choke, and such a things. So much money came in. So many companies started. They all went bankrupt within the next 10 years. So I'm afraid that the field of longevity is currently under risk of being overblown because you know, to get funding, you have to hype. And if you are hyping, you know, yeah, you get the funding, but what happens in a year or two years if you cannot deliver? Right. And delivering on a proper, on a promise like longevity, you know, that, that's more than solving cancer. Right. And we've invested billions and billions in solving cancer, and we haven't solved cancer as a problem. Right. So it's I like to see field growing. I like to see more research in this direction. But I think what is extremely careful, what is extremely important to have the expectations at a reasonable level. So each hype is extremely dangerous because it's, yes, that hype can get you some funding you can do maybe few things but then in a year you'll see all that collapse because if you cannot promise on that hype it cannot succeed and i am afraid many of the things which are currently on the market are, are just a hype yeah well look you know it, it seems to me that all fields kind of go through this where they you know have a bubble, the bubble pops, and then, you know, another kind of growth phase happens and then the bubble pops. And, but it, it seems that it always kind of trends up, right? It's always trending up, you know, so it, you know, there, there may be another bubble popping soon. We'll see, hopefully not, but, you it know. definitely will. No, as you said, this is not avoidable. But <laughs> what, you know, what has to happen is that the, the healthcare model we have now is unsustainable. Absolutely. So in US, something like 20% of the GDP goes to healthcare. Yep. And the average healthcare level is below the middle income European countries. So you have a high level healthcare for very rich people, but there's a huge amount of people with, with horrible healthcare. And you cannot increase that level of funding a lot. And it's a business model which is completely broken. Pharma companies want to just to get an FDA approval so they can get money and then they get money for 10 years and maybe then they have a lawsuit and then they settle it or whatever happens. Sick people are treated as customers. They like them because they're customers. Healthy people, prevention, promotion of health, 
this is not part of our healthcare budget. Right. This is what people have to pay for themselves. So what we have to do is somehow switch toward the continuous preventive healthcare and call it, it uh, the maintenance of health of, or longevity. My personal meaning of the word longevity is being healthy and physically well for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. It's longevity. So if I keep my normal body function in my 80s, I'll be very happy. Yep, yep. yep. I think everybody would. And that is the definition of longevity. Yep. What I will say, though, is, you know, that's part of why A4LI exists, right? I think a lot of the changes to the system you're talking about need to happen from the top down, right? And so that's why we're, you know, advocating so fiercely on behalf of this industry and on behalf of this mission. And, you know, more generally for this kind of change in healthcare and the mindset of how we do healthcare in this country, you know, take it from a sick care, like you were talking about to an actual healthcare system. So yeah. And, and, you know, I think, I, I do think people are kind of coming to that realization, right? I don't know if there's enough action on that uh, yet, but I think people are starting to wake up. You, you know, I, I see it on social media. People are aware of the issues in pharma and, and you know, the whole medical system in general. And politicians and policymakers understand too, you know, when you sit down and talk to them about it, they definitely see it, right, within their constituency, but they also, you know, it's obvious, right? It's obvious that this is the issue. How do we solve it? Like, what are the ways to kind of solve this sick care system issue? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm just a scientist here. (laughs) So I will always tell you, you know, we need more research to help people take care of themselves. For example, wearables are a cool thing. You know, before I had these things or the continuous glucose monitors, I was kind of moving blindly. Now I can see, okay, this food is better for me. This is not so good. But although we are still short of having real uh, knowledge about the meaning of things like glucose spike, triglyceride spike, is it really bad? So is it really better to have a long bump of glucose or spike? There is no hard science behind that yet. And we know nearly nothing about the microbiome and interaction of the microbiome and the diet and the glycans. So we need to learn much more. So we need to invest in this field of research, you know, definitely billions. I will not say as much as in cancer, but we have to invest a lot of money to understand why people are different and how does it, how do they respond to food? I think the food industry is maybe even the bigger problem than the pharma industry because the food industry is, you know, they're selling us what they want, what what, what we want. But this is addiction. You know, sugar is addictive. It's more addictive than cocaine. And it's it's so easy to get a snack and it, it feels so good. So it's not easy to fight it, you know, just go in a supermarket and then just at a cashier, there are so many nice things. You just want to pick one and that's it's not easy to fight against that. And people are weak. We are all weak when it comes to food because, you know, those who were not addicted to food, they died hundreds of millions of years ago. They were not eating, so they died. So only us who were eating, we survived. So it's it's difficult, but as I said, it's uh, awareness. It's it's once the, you know, for example, smoking used to be accepted. Now smoking is a dirty habit. Sure. Obesity is still accepted. 
But once obesity becomes a kind of a sign of, of a character weakness, then people will try a little bit harder to take care of the obesity. And I think if we solve obesity, we have solved a big problem. And also the physical activity, we still don't know the optimal way to exercise. So it's the lot, the most of the exercise science comes from a sports science, Mm -hmm. but the sports science is maximizing performance for a short period of time. This is what sports science is developing. You know, you have these professional trainings for the professional athletes, but what we need to optimize physical performance for a long-term health benefits. Right. And there's very little research in that respect. So it's, we have to learn more. Absolutely. Let me, so, so let me in this last part of our interview here, I want to switch to a different topic. I want to talk about collaboration in the fields and specifically international collaboration because we a4li we're a u.s based uh, organization you're in croatia are you in croatia right now there you go so you know it's amazing that this field can bring together people from around the globe i find that very inspiring right but how do you kind of view the i don't want to call it like geopolitical race or longevity right but you see a lot of countries now you see you know uh, saudi arabia with the evolution foundation you see Montenegro with the Zuzalu conference, like there's all these different countries now kind of popping up as pro longevity places. So how do you see this all developing? Do you see this as kind of an international collaboration effort to learn more about longevity? Or do you see it as kind of a competition between countries? I don't think it's a competition. Of course, every big investor wants actually to get an IP and become even richer when they discover something. So I think we are still far away from that discovery, which will make everybody very rich. And I think international collaboration is extremely important. And this is something what we learned in the genetics field 15, 20 years ago, is that at the beginning, most of the genetic research was on white Caucasians. And this is not completely valid in in all other parts of the world especially africa was completely different right. and it's we cannot just study our small region and then make universal conclusions especially when it comes to diet and we see it now because you know for a long time there were some studies claiming meat is bad right but when you look in some parts of the world there are people who eat a lot of meat and have no consequences so it's not the meat is bad. It's something else which is confounded with the, the eating of meat, which has a bad outcome. So without comparing France and England and, and, and U.S. And, and Germany, you cannot, you will never understand all the aspects of nutrition. So it's extremely important to go for a large cohort studies. And there's a, all of us in U.S., there's UK Biobank. There, there are many large biobanks where there are many people. The, the quality of the data is a little bit questionable, especially when it comes to diet, right. because people lie, you know, people never say accurately what they eat. And we need uh, intervention studies, we need replications. As I mentioned, we analyzed over 200,000 people so far, and we really tried hard that in each of our papers, there would be replication cohorts, and really nothing what we published in the last 15 years was later shown to be wrong. And this is something I'm really proud of, that what we published, this is true. 
And this cannot be done in a small study, right? Isolated. Right. So, for example, when we went for the heart attack glycan predictors, which is not commercial yet, it's just a research yet. So we did first one German cohort, then we did one US cohort, then with another US cohort, and only when all this really replicates well, we can claim, yes, we see a glycan, which is predicting heart attack right. and stroke. So this is the way I see international collaboration. We have to work together. There's one science, and we just have to work together. And it's I don't think the, the profit should be something which would should stop it. Sure. Well, I mean, the Human Genome Project, right, was like the greatest example of international collaboration on a scientific effort. So hopefully we can replicate something like that for the longevity field, because that would be that'd be wonderful. Um, My last question, though, on this topic is so, you know, Europe is kind of in general, you know, the U.S. is, you know, in terms of just companies being in a a country is is kind of leading the way. But Europe is definitely, you know, if not, you know, probably the second leading space for this field, in my opinion. What are your thoughts on, you know, specifically how we can kind of get more scientists in Europe and, you know, around the world in general? I mean, outside of the U.S., how can we make longevity more enticing or more focused on in places like Europe and, you know, even Asia, Africa, you know, other... other So so the biggest problem the longevity field has is that some other fields are considering to be alternative, not real science, supporting snake oil, and so on. So I think the most important thing to enable good science in the longevity field is to actually do good science. To try to... So the field of genetics made kind of consensus. If you want to publish something well, you have to replicate it in three independent cohorts with the very good p-values then you can say this is true. You cannot do a study on 12 mice and then make headlines in a major newspaper just because it's a hot topic. Because if you do it, you know, every few years with the new magic solution, people don't trust it anymore. So I think that that's the key solution, doing good science, having funding which is dedicated for longevity, this is very important. So to have foundations, grants, which are specific, or maybe, for example, good play, good thing in Europe is you can negotiate with European Commission for a specific calls. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years ago, we had a call for, for inflammation. So solving the low-grade chronic inflammation. And then there was a specific task switching from the periodic to continuous healthcare system. So these are the challenges which if we put them from top down, then the researchers can fit into that. Right, absolutely. Have you spoken to anybody in the Croatian government at all? What, what's their kind of take on the longevity field? So the problem with the Croatia, it's a small country. They don't invest a lot in the research. Most of the funding we have now is the European money. So I am talking very closely to... Uh, many members of the Croatian government. It's uh, I'm leading the National Center of uh, Excellence in Personalized Healthcare. This is one of our priorities to make the healthcare personalized. And it's not just the, the, the medicine, it's the general healthcare. And I'm also leading the Center of Competence in Molecular Diagnostics, where we are developing these biomarkers. So Croatia is, it is on 
this line, but it's very small and very unpowerful in, in Brussels. So it's in Europe, one has to talk to Brussels. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if you saw that conference in Montenegro, probably two, three. I've heard about it. I wasn't yeah. there. It's actually just a neighboring country, but I. I right, right. 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 Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I was, I was just over by your neck of the woods uh, not too long ago, but you're definitely right. Well, we do, we do, we need more foundational research. I think that's the key. That's the key takeaway here. You know, there's a lot of unknowns that still need to be uncovered and not even in longevity in, in all of biology. Right. I think you probably agree with that. So, yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's where the governments come in, right? You know, that's where we, we need government funding for this. We need, you know, money that's going to go not to maybe you know some money that goes to commercialization of, of products and and, and uh, treatments but you know the foundational research with the u.s only puts about 330 million dollars to foundational research in the biology of aging not enough that's so like a dollar per no. american per year it's, it's, no. really, it's really not that's enough that's... i'd do at least 10 a year for myself maybe even 100 uh, probably more than that for me honestly but anyways so i i definitely agree with you we have about 10-ish minutes left here. So the last thing I kind of want to talk to you about, or the last question I actually really want to ask you is, what gets you up out of bed in the morning? What what gives you hope for humanity, for the future? You know, Give our audience something inspirational to take away from this conversation. Well, my, I'm extremely fortunate because I have a team of nearly 50 people, 30 postdocs, and practically on a weekly basis, we have something which is wow. Meaning we understand something new. For example, last week we published a paper on the Down syndrome mm-hmm. where we see accelerated aging, but actually they don't have accelerated aging. They have a short period of accelerated aging. And then from maybe 18 or 20 years, they have exactly the same pace of aging as the normal people. Not normal. I said dysomic chromosome 21 people. So to have this kind of realization. And for that, we studied a couple hundred people with Down syndrome Mm -hmm. to realize that it's this accelerated aging is not continuous acceleration of aging, but there is something which is pushing aging. And then they age in the same trajectory. This is kind of cool. So usually what wakes me up and it really wakes me up at four or 5 a.m. And then I started thinking it's the questions, how can we actually understand what is going on? We have no ideas how glycosylation is regulated, what kind of complicated mechanisms there are. And we are learning on a daily basis how fascinating field it is. And this is what I enjoy doing. And I enjoy doing, for example, studies when people do intervention study and then you see something. For example, that study which I mentioned where we saw a decrease in epigenetic and a glycan age. And I said immediately, wow, let's do it to horses, let's do it to camels, let's see what we can do to make, because now they have a rat which lives for five years. Rats don't live for five years. So there is something there which could have an effect. But before thinking about doing it to humans, my my question would be, okay, what it is, how it works, why it works. Right. Not just taking a magic pill, but dissecting the magic pill and trying to understand how it actually works. But it sounds like, from what you just said, that it sounds like there are new discoveries every day, right? And so that gives me hope because everybody I talk to says, oh, we're, we're, we're learning new things every day. The progress is amazing. And, you know, if enough people are, you know, pushing towards amazing progress, we'll be in a good spot in a couple of years, right? 10, 20, whatever the amount yep. of time is. But 
they're, you know, in this field and, you know, you are included definitely in this group of people, but there, there, there really is a dedicated group of people in this field that really wants to see this mission through. And, you know, I appreciate them because, you know, down, down the road, this is going to hopefully benefit mine and all of our health. Right. So, but you know, we have to be realistic. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. And then what I learned, you know, we get the fancy grants, we get something like 15 million euros. Let's work on something for six years. And we expect to do magic in these six years with the 15 million euros. And then a six year pass. And then we realize, okay, we did a lot, but we still don't understand much. So I think it's important to be realistic, not to keep expectations too high. It doesn't really matter if we discover it in my lifetime or not. If we discover it in my children's lifetime, that's also good. Or grandchildren. It's a complex issue. It's not just, you know, we'll find one button and press the button and then we will reset the age. It doesn't work that way. You cannot do it. There is a reason why neurons do not divide. You know, if you divide a neuron, you, you lose all the connections. So you lose all the knowledge from that life. So you cannot just reset and become a baby. And can you go back for 10 years? I don't know. But we have to do research. I agree completely. It's That's the fun part. Right. Well, yeah, we'll find out, right? We'll find out. We'll hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll kind of get some clarity on all these questions. But until then, you know, you and I are going to keep working hard to make this, you know, this world a better place and to make people healthier for longer. Right. So Gordon, with that, I think we are close to wrapping up here. I just want to give you one more second here. Is there any way or can you can you tell our audience how they can learn more information on glycans and glycanage and can you kind of give them a page to go to some sort of information? So glycanage is a very unique name. If you Google glycanage, you get to glycanage website. There is a lot of information there. It's still, you know, I say there are nearly a thousand clinics. When you look at the global scale, that's not so much. No, maybe one or two in New York, it's not so easy to find them. So at the moment, the best thing would be just Google. There's a lot of, there are a lot of my lectures recorded. There's a Glycan Hub, which is a channel recording the promotional, lecture, the, the educational lectures from different researchers. So I think glycans are the, 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 the very important word which people should get um, acquainted with because without glycans, they're missing big part of the picture. So and any kind of research which is excluding glycans is missing big part of the picture. All right. All right. Google glycan age, everybody. Gordon, with that, I want to say thank you for joining us on this age span podcast episode. I will be following up with you to get a progress or update report uh, sometime in the uh, future, sometime maybe in a year or so from now, we can get some updates on glycan age and the progress. I'm really excited about the work you're doing and I'm really excited about this field in general. So I, I want to thank you for your time and for your insights. It's uh, very appreciated and I'm sure audience appreciates it too. Thank you for the invitation and thank you what you are doing to move this field forward. Thank you, Gordon, for making the time to join us today. And for those of you listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you'd like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at A4LI.org. H-SPAN will return in a couple of weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.